0: Suffice for us to start this, okay. Um, all right, in John chapter 20, we're going to take a look today at verses 24 through 31 in John chapter 20, and we're starting a new series today in the book of John, and you're probably wondering, why are we starting in chapter 20 Why not start in chapter 1? Well, it'll make total sense when you see uh, what it contains, especially in verses 30 and 31. And so here's what it says there. It says, um, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So this is after his death and resurrection. He appeared to them once. Thomas wasn't there. So this is then when Jesus comes a second time and Thomas is there. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that opening the scriptures and meeting Jesus Christ there is like Thomas seeing Jesus after the resurrection, that it will increase our faith, that it will increase our devotion, that will increase our knowledge of the truth, that we may be more fully useful to you in your kingdom, that we indeed may experience the eternal life about which Jesus spoke. We pray this day, Lord, then, that you'll be with us and accompany us as we study this word together. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I once did a wedding ceremony in which there was a particular part of the ceremony in which we had the congregation to stand and, and engage with some of the things we were saying and, and make certain oaths to help the couple in in mind, and uh, I forgot to tell them to be seated after all that, and I don't know how long it was, it was a good long while, it was too long people were getting fidgety, and then then all of a sudden it was like, oh, uh, go ahead and sit down. But, uh, you know, it gave everyone a little exercise to do in the middle of the wedding ceremony. But here we are in John chapter 20, and we're looking especially at verses 30 and 31, which I left up there for you to see. And we're looking at, you know, how it, this this issue with Thomas, and we've all heard the story before, kind of flows right into this, and it flows into the very purpose of what John is doing. So as we embark on a study of the Gospel of John, and we look at some of the things in there, what we want to do is we want to begin with, what did he have in mind? Why was he writing this? Because we believe that the Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Therefore, the Spirit inspired John to write what he wrote, and it even inspired the purpose in it. So the more that we are aware of what that purpose is, as it's plainly stated here, the better we will be at studying the Gospel and tying things into his ultimate purpose that he has by the leading of the Spirit that he has chosen here. And what we might want to do is we might want to ask some questions right at the beginning of this, whenever we start a series, whenever we gather together for preaching, this is worthy to consider, why are we even bothering to do what we do? Sunday after Sunday, preaching through books of the Bible, most of them you've read. Are not the words the words? The words aren't going to change significantly, and the translations may change a little bit from here to there, but the message is the same. So what are we going to gain going over the same words, the words, the words, over and over? I already know what's in the Bible, and this is a temptation for someone who goes off to Bible school or seminary or something else, that they can study through the Scriptures so much that they think, okay, I've got it, I understand it. And if I ever forget what's there, I can just look it up because I have it right here and I have software that can search it out for me. Find the topic I'm interested in. That is a good question. Another question would be why start at the end of this one? Well, we covered that. We're talking about the purpose of it. The reason why we gather to do this is going to become plain as we go through and exposit these verses here and understand what it is that John is saying and make some connections to other parts of his gospel and other parts of the New Testament. And so we see that the purpose of this book, as stated there in verse 31, is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So let's break this down just a little bit at a time. Now, first of all, will say that these are written. And the most important thing to establish for the purpose of our study is the purpose of the book. And we see here that the purpose of the book is an increase of faith. These things are written. John was moved to write a gospel, believing that the writing down of these things could be used by God to spark faith in future generations of believers. See that there in that verse? And the Word of God is God's chosen vehicle for the saving truth of Jesus Christ and the training of the people of God. I want to point out a few more scriptures to you that might be helpful to you. Uh, Let's go to John 17, 20. In the garden... When, Je- when Jesus is about to be arrested, this is his last night. He's reviewing with the disciples most important things they need to make it through the following days and ultimately the following years. He prays this. He says, I do not ask for these only. So his prayer is not just for the ones with him. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the intention of Jesus in departing was that the disciples would stay and they would make more disciples. And it would accomplish that through their word. The word, of course, at first being primarily oral, primarily preached, primarily something that was, that was taught person to person, memorized, and then passed on. Tonight we'll talk about the issues of memorization, the issues of, the issues of oral transmission, and things like that in the first century. How do we know what we got is the truth? We'll talk about those issues tonight. That's a little deeper stuff for you. But John prays for those who would believe through their testimony. And look at what it is that, uh, that Paul says about this in 2 Timothy. We're very familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. But if we back up a little bit, we look at the context of what he's talking to Timothy about. He says this, As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you catch what he's saying there? Paul was writing this letter in the first century. Some of the letters had been written of the New Testament. Some of the Gospels had been written to that point, but they didn't have something called the New Testament. God was still building it. So what scriptures is he talking about? He is talking about the same scriptures through which the disciples came to believe and were saved, through which the first generations of Christians came to believe and were saved, the Old Testament. So when you're perusing sermons and whatnot online, or you're seeing things pop up in your in your feed and things like that, and you hear some fool say, We don't need the Old Testament anymore. Just turn the page, <laughs> swipe away, shut it off, do whatever it takes to get as far as you can, because it was good enough for Jesus and the apostles, it's good enough for us. And so he he says it is sufficient for salvation, to make you wise for salvation. Then he goes on, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the scripture is not just there to get you saved. The scripture is there to bring you through to completion. It's a lifelong, Opportunity to grow in the scriptures. This is plainly what Paul has said, and he's talking about the Old Testament. And this was the teaching of the early church. Look in the book of Acts. Uh, To him, all the prophets bear witness that is, to Christ that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name again the old testament bears witness about this this was god's plan from the beginning was to use the word of god to accomplish his purposes in the world and he says this plainly in the book of Isaiah 55, where he compares it to the rain that comes down and causes the plants upon the earth to grow. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, my word will accomplish this. My word will make it happen. So many of the scriptures that I'm sharing with you today will be your ammunition to deal with those people who say, yeah, the word of God's outdated. Yeah, we don't really need that anymore. It's like, well, wait a minute. This was God's chosen vessel. Isaiah wrote some 700 years before Jesus came and some of the rest of the Bible's much older than that. And yet Paul comes along and says, it's sufficient. Not only for salvation, but to make you complete and trained. It's the written word that can make us wise to salvation. We read the Gospels, and the tendency is to get a little jealous of the disciples. We kind of wish we were there, don't we? i kind of envious of them sometimes. It's like, look what they experienced. No wonder they could go out and do so much. If I had that kind of a revelation of Christ, if I saw the things that he did, I'm sure I would be a better Christian. I'm sure I would be more devoted and more motivated or whatever. But the lesson of Thomas is really that it's not necessary to see. See, Jesus looks at this and and he says, Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then the answer from Thomas is, and of course, it doesn't say that he actually had to do that because I think at that point he didn't have to. It's like, maybe I misspoke. Maybe I spoke out of turn. I see you're clearly here. My Lord and my God. This was not an exclamation. This was a declaration. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here's Jesus. He's standing in the presence of the men who have been with him since before his baptism. Some of them followed John before, but they all came to Jesus and they saw Jesus from the time of his baptism all the way to the time of his resurrection. They've seen the resurrected Christ. They've seen the miracles he performed. They saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. Some of them saw Jesus transfigured upon the top of the mountain. They saw him cast out demons and Jesus is standing there with them in his resurrection body and he calls out a blessing on you. On you. In front of these men who have been there for all these things. And I read that and I read that and understood that this time when I read it, that's a blessing upon me. That he's saying I'm blessed because I will believe not having seen. Now I'm still trying to figure out what he meant by that. Because I'm still envious of the disciples in many ways. But does that mean that the Spirit and the Word work in us more significantly, more differently than perhaps it did them? I don't know. But it's a blessing to believe and to not have seen. These things are written that you may believe. We need to talk a little bit about this word believe because John uses it almost 100 times in his gospel. So that's 21 chapters, 22 chapters. You do the math. That's a lot. And some chapters a lot more than others. You're going to see this word. But it's important to understand that in the New Testament, believing and faith are really from the same root word. And the reason why it comes over differently in English is because we don't use faith as a verb. We don't say we faithed in Jesus Christ. We say we believed in Jesus Christ. And we use believe as a noun in the word belief, but in English, the word belief is not sufficient to describe our relationship with Christ. We need a word like faith, and I would suggest even a word like trust because it's more than just being convinced. It's the kind of convincing that takes action. That's what faith is. And so, you know, with that being said, when you read your scriptures, when you read your Bible, understand, in the New Testament, when you see believing, when you see faith, it's it's basically interchangeable. It's talking about this same concept. And here in in, uh, John, verse 28 thomas's response this is what jesus says have you believed i've highlighted believe for you and i'll leave that highlighted as we go through these other texts and you're going to see just how pervasive the word is in scripture and remember as we've defined it here believing is this being convinced to the point of acting being convinced to the point of acting it is much more like Trust than it is just simple knowledge, and then there's an interesting parallel between Thomas's response and John's statement of faith. If we look in verse twenty eight what Thomas says, he says, My Lord and my God and then we look down in verse thirty one which is the one that we're really interested in here, it says uh, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see how my Lord, my God, and the Christ, the Son of God, are related? The concept of Christ, and we'll study it in depth, there'll be a sermon about the Christ. There'll be a sermon about the Son of God and these various titles that John uses. When we get to the Christ, we're going to see wrapped up in that is so much more than a title. What it literally means, of course, is anointed or chosen but what it caused all the early readers, all of John's peers and his audience and everything to think about was it drew them back to King David and it drew him back to being this anointed one and all the scriptures that were inspired by him and that he wrote in the Psalms and then the subsequent prophets that came along speaking of an anointed one that would come from the line of David that would accomplish these great things in the kingdom to establish a kingdom upon the earth to the point where all the other nations are coming to. it. So when you say the Christ, it would be totally appropriate to respond to the Christ, my Lord. Because that is his position, that is his authority as the king, as the chosen king of God, to rule essentially the earth. But then he says, my God, and he adds to this something that were the elders and the people of the Jews, the unbelievers, to overhear him doing this, they would go find a cross for him too. Because he is ascribing this to a man. Now there are cults out there which say that Jesus was not divine. Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus, you know, and, and their biggest obstacle, their biggest us single biggest obstacle in all of Scripture is the Gospel of John. And this is one of the reasons. And you know what they'll say? They'll say, Thomas was exclaiming here, my Lord and oh my God, using it as an exclamation. Well, okay, isn't that interesting? Just like it's not right in our culture to take the name of the Lord as a curse, it was much more so in theirs. So here he is, he sees this one who has died, who has risen from the dead, who he saw do great miracles, teach great things about the wonders, the glory, the greatness, the holiness of God, and what does he do? He curses in front of him. It just doesn't make any sense at all. But if you're sold out to wanting Jesus to be less than God, then I guess you go with it, even though it's nonsensical. When we get to Son of God, we're going to see this ascribed to Jesus' great divinity. We're going to explore the concept of the Son of God as you see it in the Old Testament and how it was understood in the time of Jesus when he came. And then we'll get a sense of exactly how provocative it was when they picked up stones to stone him. It was because he was making himself out to be a Son of God, therefore equal. With God. And so, this believing is not a random thing, it is believing something specific. John wrote his gospel not just so that you'd have this general kind of faith, but know that you'd have this specific faith that Jesus is this specific thing of the Christ and this specific thing, He is the Son of God. And that understanding and knowing those things together might spark the faith that brings eternal life. And so that's a second, or the, the, the next thing he points out, the other part of the equation, that you may have life in his name. And this is when the question comes. This is when human nature kicks in, and this is when all the, the principalities and powers and the prince of the power of the air and all the others conspire to complicate something that's profoundly simple. Can it really be that simple? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Yes, it is exactly that simple. But it is not easy. Do you understand the difference? Something simple can be defined in just a few words as John has done it here. That the principles are clear, that it is black and white, what he is speaking of, but then we get into the real nuts and bolts of how this works out, and we realize, okay, while this is simple enough, it is not easy. It is not easy. Believing or having faith, as you explore the scriptures, you're going to find this to be true. That believing is the singular condition for salvation in Jesus Christ. Repentance, confession, baptism, and all other forms of obedience to Christ are the necessary results of that faith, that believing. Let me walk through some scriptures to show that to you here in the book of John. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 14, this is the context of John 3, 16, so it's important we understand what Jesus is talking about. He's making a comparison that goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 21. I did not put that in your notes. If you want to go look at it uh, later, just write down Numbers 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus says, So must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the serpent in the wilderness thing, the the people of Israel were not cooperating with God while they were wandering in the wilderness. God sent upon them these fiery serpents that were biting people and the people were dying. And so they come, Moses, you got to do something. Moses talks to God. He's like, make a serpent, put it up on a pole. Just really odd because when you think about the imagery of a serpent and all that means in scripture and everything else, and we're going to take this serpent, we're going to put it up on a pole. Well, yeah, what's a serpent on a pole? The dead serpent. It's not going to cooperate and just hang out there. When was the last time you saw a serpent on a pole? Just for fun. So the serpent on a pole represents this, this dead serpent, but that's kind of what they were dealing with, what was fighting them were these serpents that were biting them and killing them. And the instruction was, look at this, and you'll be saved. So the people, even if they were bitten, if they were bitten by one of the serpents, the instruction was, oh, get him over where he can see the thing. He's got to see the thing, and, and he's got it lifted up over there. Look at the thing, look at the serpent up on the pole, and you'll, you'll be saved. And they were. And Jesus comes along and says, that was about me. He says, that's that's me there. And he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, which was a euphemism at the time for being crucified. And so he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Notice there, only condition, belief. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you get that? There's one of two conditions outlined here for a human being. It is not believing and condemned, or it is believing and having eternal life. And believing is the only condition that he lays out here. And this is further solidified later in the passage as he he talks more about this, and we'll get into that when we get there. But look what he says, how he sums this up at the end of the chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on. Now this is in the same conversation, essentially the same paragraph as John 3.16. Nowhere in there does it say, oh, but you also have to obey him. But now you get down here and it says you believe you have eternal life, but if you don't obey him, you'll not see life. Why does it say it that way? Because it's very simple. Obedience is a sign of faith. And it was common practice and a common technique to substitute the result of a thing for the thing. Someone might ask you, is it snowing outside? You say, I'm putting my boots on. <laughs> What's the answer? Yes. See, even the children get. They understand that intuitively. And you'll say, Well, you didn't answer my question. Yes, I did. Why else would I put my boots on? You know, if you're like my wife, you wear flip flops till it snows. And Nate, and my son. But this is a result of it. Let, let's look at this very clearly here. We can say this. Obedience to Jesus Christ means that you might be saved. Disobedience to Jesus Christ means you're not saved. Say, well, wait a minute. I'm not totally obedient to Jesus. Well, okay, we're talking about in general. Where is your heart? What is your desire? You might say, well, I go on sin. I miss the mark every day. And you say, yes, indeed, we all do. We all sin. We all miss the mark every day. But is there still the effort? Is there still the grievance? Is there still the repentance and the confession and the relationship that goes on? James explains this in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, I'll bring this up for you here, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm to be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying here is faith doesn't need works to help it save you. Faith needs works to be confirmed as true faith. He goes on to say, you know, uh, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And that's really important. Even the demons believe. And yes, that's the same word. Or are the demons going to be saved then? No, they have some knowledge. They know who Jesus is. They're the first ones to recognize him when you read the Gospels. But what James is saying very clearly here is that if you don't have the result of faith, it's likely you don't have the faith. The difficulty that I have sometimes, is I think, am I like one of the demons that believe? I accept all the facts, I can explain these things about Jesus, and yet sometimes I just fall so short, it's like, what is wrong with me? But then he encourages me by convicting me of my sins, and bringing me to repentance, and that is indeed an encouragement. So this is a struggle. This is to be something that is embarked upon. It's to be difficult. Look what Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's telling the believers in regards to obedience work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, take this very seriously as if your life depends upon it. And if you do take it very seriously and you do strive to obey and you do work at your salvation, then that's a very good sign. That is a very good sign. He sums up this at the end of this passage in chapter 3 of Philippians. He says, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the words he uses to explain it? And he uses other words in other places, words that had to do with with first century wrestling, with first century racing and competing and training and exercising, this idea of straining to the end. He describes a Christian life in that way. So does that mean you just believe and it's all done? No. It's only just begun. So what encouragement are we to take from this? It takes effort. It takes striving. It takes running the race, but it's worth it. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 4 as he speaks to a woman at a well a woman, a sinful woman that he did not know, that did not know, well, he knew her. She did not know him. She brings up her past, or he brings up her past, and and it's very intense scene. You're probably familiar with it. But he likens the message of the gospel, the coming of Christ, who he's Christ, to this, he says, everyone who drinks of this water, now they're sitting at a, at a well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what it's like when he says that we could have life in his name. He's talking about something that's going to well up in you continually, that's going to constantly come up and overflow. It's going to be fresh every day. When we were on vacation this past week, we went to this spring in, uh, in Michigan. It's the largest spring in Michigan. Something like 10,000 gallons a minute of fresh water come up out of the ground. And the reason why it's an attraction at all is because you come across the pool, you know, and if you were just walking through the woods there and you come across this strange pool, there's this great big pond with this big creek flowing out of it. So that should get your attention. The second thing that would get your attention is the fact that you can see 40 feet down all the way to the bottom. Because it is the cleanest, purest water it can be. It's been filtered through the earth and it's pushing up out of the ground right there and they put you on this glass bottom little raft that they that has a cover on it to hide the glare and everything and you go across and you can see right to the bottom of this thing it's really amazing but this is what jesus is talking about His eternal life is like that. His eternal life is that every second coming up, as it were, seemingly out of the ground, and in this case, he says, out of your own self, comes this fresh and refreshing water, this life-giving fluid. And he says, that's what I've got for you. So as we talk about believing in his name and we talk about the process and working out salvation with fear and trembling and everything else, understand what is the goal. The goal is something that we achieve now and becomes better and better forever and ever as it's a continual life-giving flood from within our own hearts given by the Spirit of God. So as we embark on our study of John, there's going to be a couple things that I want to encourage you with. And first of all would be this. For some of us, it's time to get serious about finding out who this Jesus is. We understand some things. We know that he was crucified, that he rose again, that he proclaimed, believe in me and live and all that. But there's so much more to know and understand that's going to increase your faith. The key to moving forward in the Christian life is the same as it is to moving into the Christian life, and it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, prayerfully seeking the truth about him. Do you realize it was a process for the disciples? And we talked about how we were envious to maybe be in their place. Do you realize they were with him for over three years? And they weren't getting it. They got it a little bit at a time, a little more each time. Give yourself a break and understand it's going to take time. But it's going to take his word. See, they had him 24-7 preaching and doing miracles and everything else and walking along the road and all the things he said to them that are not recorded in the book. And so for you and I, it's going to take time in the word of God Don't get frustrated. Continue following him. And as we go through the the book of John, follow him along the shores of Galilee, the streets of Jerusalem, until the Spirit moves you and you surrender to the truth. So for some of us, it's time to get serious about finding out who it is. For others of us, it's time to cut the ropes. In the book of Acts, chapter 27, one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible Paul is involved in a shipwreck. Yeah, I know spoilers there, but you'll get through it. It's still exciting how it all unfolds and everything. But at one point, he tells the people, look, an angel appeared to me. Paul tells the the sailors this. An angel appeared to me. We're all going to be okay if you listen to me. And at one point, some sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. Look what it says here. They had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. See, they were coming aground. They knew they were coming aground. And these guys are like, let's get in the lifeboat and get off this thing. This thing's going to crash. And they lower the boat down. And look at what Paul says here in verse 31. He said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. The soldiers cut away the... The ropes of the ship's boat. Now the, the ship's running aground. When the ship runs aground, it's no longer good for anything. Eventually it'll be driftwood when it makes it up on the beach. You've taken the one useful thing you have left. They've thrown everything else overboard. The one useful thing, you cut it away. You know what that is? It's faith. That's faith. Faith. They believe the words of Paul. Why don't we believe the words of Jesus when he says, take up your cross and follow me? Why don't we believe the words of Jesus says, you got to love me more than you love the world. Believe the words of Jesus when he says, you're going to have trouble in this world, but I've overcome the world. Let us believe the words of Jesus. Let us cut the ropes. All the things we're hoping, all our plan B's, all the affirmation we get from human beings being one of those calm Christians, being one of those okay Christians, one of those Christians that aren't so much in your face. And all the comfort we receive from not being too abrasive to the people around us, cut the ropes on that and follow Christ that crucified him. They'll not do as bad to you. Let's pray. Father God, we do believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of god that he came and he taught and he died and yet he lives and he intercedes at your right hand and lord we understand that this faith journey it's not just about coming to christ once and done but coming and staying and persisting and striving i pray lord that as we embark upon this study of the work of your servant John, that we indeed will be encouraged, that we will be strengthened in our faith, that we will become more and more pleasing to you. As it is pleased you to save us, Lord, may we be about pleasing you to continue your great work here through us and in us. Thank you, Lord, for your good ministry through your servant, John, for all that we're going to learn in this series. For, Lord, I pray that you can help us to go through this, to help us to be faithful to the text, to help us to gain much from it. Unite us in your spirit as we embark on this together, that we will learn together, that we will grow together in unity and in love. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.